Eastern Standard here. I am indeed Corey Morgan, and thank you for joining me for what's going to be a, a good, uh, better part of an hour covering some news issues, covering a little ranting on my part, and uh, well, some, some feedback back and forth. i got a great guest coming on, Shane Wenzel of Shane Holmes. Yes, his father named the company after him. Shane's sort of the, the principal there these days, I believe, and we're going to talk about home building it's not as dull as you might think. Like we've got a real issue going on. We got a lot of people coming to Canada, settling in, which can be great, but we are not coming anywhere close to keeping up with building the housing supply to keep all these new Canadians. And uh, a lot of governments are in the way. So Shane can be able to really lend a lot of insight into what is it going to take to speed up construction or get these things done? And uh, what's been in the way? What's making it so hard to get enough housing built in Alberta? Um, so, yes, it's uh, good to see you there checking in. Guys, Chris there from North ok Okanagan and Debbie from Tabor. Use that comment uh, area. Guys have discussions with each other, send questions my way, my guests' way. I don't necessarily read them all out, but I do see them all up there, and I appreciate it. It reminds me there are people actually viewing this and listening and taking part and participating and i'm not just talking to myself like i tend to do when i'm driving so keep it going guys again as i always like to remind folks though keep it civil we can take everything seriously without taking it too personally and getting on each other's cases so i'm going to start with what's got me wound up and something i'm kind of taking personally you know small towns they've been getting a bad rap lately they've been uh, <laughs> demonized by the crazed woke left all over a song song so let me talk about small towns a little bit. I live in Prittis, Alberta. It's a little hamlet in the Rocky Mountain foothills, just west of the city of Calgary. I'm near Calgary, but I'm in the bush there. That's why I get those great pictures on my game camera. And it's a diverse community. We got people of all sorts of backgrounds and such, because a lot commute to the nearby city of Calgary. But the prime local industry is ranching. It's a small town. Now with my house, it has a lot of history behind it. Back in 1920, there was actually a sizable tea house built on what's now my property. And when the owner of that tea house retired at the start of the 1960s, he sold the home to a couple who had eight children. Yeah, they were big families back then. But that big old tea house was ideal for such a big family. Unfortunately, it was also a fire trap. And in 1962, the house burned to the ground and a family of 10 people found itself homeless. So then what happened? Well, the community stepped up. The father and the older children were actually housed in a nearby community hall, and the mother and younger children were sent to Manitoba to live with extended family. Neighbors from our area pitched in, and they built a modest log home on what's now my property. The family's period of homelessness was terrible, but relatively short, and that was thanks to the effort of the community. I learned about that part of my home's history when some of those kids now who are older than I am, came to visit uh, Jane and I at our house, actually. It was a very emotional reunion for them, seeing the place where they grew up back then. Now, going further, I, I used to own the local pub in Prittis. I, I talk about that now and then. And if you really want to know everybody in your area, run the local pub. I tell you, everybody comes by it one way at a time or another. Now, in the last year before I sold that pub, we were robbed twice in a matter of weeks. The cost of the theft and the damages caused by them set us back dearly, and it was stressful. It was autumn. Our slow season was approaching. And I mean, the pub was profitable, but the profits were pretty modest and we were in a tight spot. Now, within hours of the first robbery, a neighbor actually brought over a piece of plywood and cut it for us to secure the door where the glass had been smashed out. And the day after that, local children created a bunch of fantastic notes and pictures that they decorated the door with. Yeah, these, these pictures and drawings thanking us for running the local business and everything. It really brightened my morning in a dark time when I was going to open my boarded up door in the pub for the day. 
the owner of another pub in a nearby town, a competitor, held a surprise fundraiser for us. And our community made a point of patronizing our place more than ever to help us get back on our feet again. It helped us financially and emotionally get through what was a tough winter. Now, we've come together and put us as a community for our neighbors when, well, they've lost children, lost homes, even when they've lost pets unexpectedly. And it's hard to find that kind of local support network in a city. But what does it all come down to? In small towns, we take care of our own. And that's the line, that's the main one, that the woke are losing their minds over in Jason Aldean's hit song, Try That in a Small Town. Somebody dared to say we take care of our own. The insane left is claiming that line has hidden racist undertones. As not only is that a load of hogwash, it's insulting to cut down what's actually such a beautiful thing is the protective civic spirit of small towns. It has nothing to do with race. I don't doubt small communities and countries with people of all races are similar in that sense of community and protecting their neighbors. If anything, people in cities should be looking at ways to emulate the tight-knit communities of small towns. It feels good to know your neighbors, to be able to help your neighbors, and to be able to depend on your neighbors. And you don't need to be in a small town to try and develop those relationships. Aldine makes a valid point in his song. He mentions things such as people being sucker-punched on sidewalks or old ladies being carjacked. These things don't happen often, if ever, in small towns, as the perpetrators don't tend to get away before locals can get their hands on them. In the city, people have been trained to look the other way rather than intervene for their neighbors, and it's a bad trend. Yeah, sure, crime happens. My bar was robbed in a small town. Should be noted, though, when the criminals were caught, it was found they came in actually from the city to rob us. I didn't need a bouncer when I had my pub. The local regulars took care of that in my bar, and woe be tied, and it happened, to visiting folks who might think it's a good idea to start trouble in a small town bar. It's tiresome watching race baiters trying to find evidence of racism in everything. Why go ballistic over a song celebrating and pointing out one of the benefits of living in a small town? Why are some people so obsessed with division that they have to inject racism into a song where there was none? Look, it might not be for everybody, but small towns are great, folks. I'd recommend to anybody who can work remotely to get out of the city. Cities are crime-ridden, over-governed, and running out of uh, housing. They're crowded. Small town living is cost-effective, the air is fresher, it's safer, and most importantly... In small towns, we take care of our own, no matter what color. So I just wanted to get that out, guys. You know, I, I, I just had to counter that. I know people have been discussing that song and, and the pushback and the, those harridans on the, uh, the View talking about how evil and racist that song was. Again, no basis. No basis. We just have to inject that division. Guys, I'm here to defend small towns. I love them, and they're good people, and it's just ridiculous to watch the woke come down on them. All right. So normally at this point, I go to our news editor, Dave, to check in and see what's happening in the news, but he is indisposed today. So you're stuck with me right through till we get our guest. That's all right. We got lots to talk about. So something happened this week too, which was interesting. I, I had a package waiting for me. It was actually a picture of it was tweeted out by uh, James. This was on my desk. It says, uh, acid tabs for Corey Morgan. I get a lot of interesting stuff sent here to the Western Standard Office, and this was a different one. What the hell does that mean? Have we got a bunch of uh, LSD showing up for me? I mean, you know, come on, my head's already kind of screwy enough as it is. What's, what's going on? Either way, uh, once I got here and got to realize the other side of the envelope, so I guess they understood there was going to be some uh, confusion perhaps. It says, don't worry, it's for the bees. Ah, yes, and the sticker. So this came from, it's a, it's a literal acid treatment for mites. Um, from the guys, Mike and Pedro at Freedom Honey, it's called. And uh, they've got a good sense of humor on them, and they've got a good cause, actually. They raise bees out by Edmonton, 
uh, and they, they sell the honey and, and it goes towards veteran causes. Check them out actually on Twitter. And I think there are other areas of social media, uh, Facebook and such freedom honey. And uh, they sent me because I'd had some bee challenges, uh, some acid treatment to try and keep those mites down because they know I'm a uh, beekeeper. So uh, yes, it was a nice surprise. Hey, keep sending things to the office, but you know, be careful guys. Don't want anything that ticks or leaks or uh, any strange stuff like that. But uh, uh, I guess, you know, acid tabs are welcome uh, of the right kind. So uh, yeah, nothing fearful or terrible happened in here, but uh, lots of good things happening. All right. So let's see, I'm going to have a look at the Western standard website then, and I'll kind of run through what Dave would have told us is topping the news today is that's what's important with our site. We'd cover news. We have reporters all over the place and we're writing that stuff up. Uh, right now there's the Calgary police are hunting a suspect in uh, a deadly hit and run. You can see the, the headline there. So if you know this guy, you know where he is, you know, have a look at that picture, have a look at the video, call it in. Uh, somebody was run down and killed and he took off, which is always terrible. Another story that always gets to people, uh, Toronto police, uh, I saw this one earlier, a canine uh, officer, bingo, was shot to death during a search for a gunman. These, these police dogs, you know, it's, it's, it's true and it's, it's, it's a, just a human nature thing. We always, I mean, we, we, we get upset when anybody, you know, anybody who's not a sociopath gets upset when you hear about a death or a shooting of a person, of course. But when it's the helpless or when it's others are innocent, like a dog, it really gets to us. You know, this dog was just doing what he felt was a good job and, and running out there and, and doing it right. And, you know, I, I imagine... The, the, the dog gave its life and it saved probably a human officer. But uh, let's, you know, recognize that dog's service and, and hope that in this country, so prone to weak sentences to criminals and such, that there is a very, very strong sentence awaiting the man who uh, killed that, that, that unfortunate dog that was uh, doing its job there. I hate reading about stories like that. But, uh, well, good work, bingo. Thanks for your service. Uh, in uh, Edmonton, yeah, there's a video of uh, a high-risk homeless camp, a large one in Edmonton's Chinatown that I guess the city is dismantling, so they've had enough. It's one of those difficult areas, and, and again, our Arthur Green covers that sort of stuff all the time up in Edmonton. It's happening in every city. It's a real problem, homelessness, tent cities, crime, the addiction, and, and all that goes with it. Um, the difficulty is you can dismantle these large camps, but where do these people go? I mean, they need somewhere to go, and... Uh, I, you know, we get frustrated. You can't let them just set up large tent camp encampments and, and uh, that lead to social disorder and problems indefinitely. But we do have to wonder what's going to happen to these folks. Where are we going to put them? Okay, they're out of that homeless camp in Chinatown. They're just going to scatter and set up in homeless camps in other areas. And you can keep playing whack-a-mole and chasing them down. But in the end, we got to figure out what to do. I mean, the snow is going to fly in a few months. I know nobody likes to hear that right now. But these homeless people are going to need shelter. And... Uh, the reality, too, that not enough people discuss, though, when it comes to these particular encampments. Look, the vast majority of the people in them are addicts. Let's not beat around that bush. Let's not allow that narrative to go on. Oh, there are people who fell through the cracks or people who just couldn't get enough of a living wage. No, guys, they're addicts. They need treatment. They need help. I'm not saying we should dismiss these people because they're addicts. In fact, quite the opposite. We should be going out of our way to find ways to get them into treatment because that's where it all starts and ends. As long as they're addicted, nothing else is going to work. As I've said before, I, I don't know if it was on the show or if it was on Twitter, but there's truth to it. If you just take, people say they just need a home. Okay, put them in a house, a bunch of addicts. What do you think you got? Well, you got a crack house. 
And they're unfortunately, I'm, <laughs> it's just reality, guys. They're going to trash the place. They're going to rip the copper wires out of the walls. They're going to sell it and they'll be back out in the streets in another homeless camp. You have to treat the addiction first. Likewise, other people say, they just got to get a job. Well, there's a little more than that. I mean, look at these guys. They are not in condition to get a job yet. They are, again, you got to treat the addiction. Until that's treated, they can't work for people. They aren't in their right minds. And that's, I was at a, a function last night that was, it was given and a presentation by an addiction treatment center. It was very interesting. This one was very family focused. It's such a huge issue. I talk about it a lot. I find it's a personal issue. A lot of us uh, are touched by addiction, whether directly or indirectly through family. I mean, the amount of overdoses is just horrific. The amount of young people we're seeing on the streets with those drugs eating them alive. But what's interesting with the success rate of this particular program I was, I was looking at the uh, presentation from, very family-oriented. They don't just treat the addict, they treat the surrounding family. Because, of course, when a person's in the throes of addiction, and it can come from a, an intact family, a high-income family, or a low-income family, it can happen to everybody, and that's what's got to be remembered. But having that network of family around them is so important for recovery later. Because getting off of the drugs, that's great. Of course, that's where you have to start. But the harder part's the long game. The harder part is staying sober. And if you don't have a network of people around you, you're going to have a very hard time doing it. And unfortunately, the people on the streets often may have lost their family relationships or maybe they weren't in a good family relationship to begin with. We've got a very complicated issue in trying to help them. I mean, I know people say, well, just get them in and stuff them into treatment. I'm, I'm along the lines of compassionate intervention. I agree with that. But remember... This treatment, the, the place I saw the presentation from, the average inpatient time is 277 days. It takes a long time, a lot of resources, and a lot of work to take somebody out of that state and get them functional again. So be prepared to spend a lot. I think it's an investment in our society. I tell you, I curse about a lot of spending on a lot of things the government does, but I do believe we should spend on those who can't take care of themselves. And some people who can't take care of themselves are people who are in the throes of advanced addiction. I think we have a moral obligation to help them however possible. And, you know, we do have laws. I've talked about that before with a family member. We had to actually put into a mental health facility for a while, and he's, he's out now and settled in, and, and that's great. But there is a means to commit people if they're in a state of mind where they could hurt themselves or others. Well, you know what? I don't see why we can't declare a lot of the people, at least when they're addicted to the point of living on the streets, and just say, face it, they're going to hurt themselves if we leave them where they are. We've got nothing to lose in intervening. I know it infringes on their liberty, but this is a, the point where you step over that line. Either way, it's an ongoing thing. So yes, Edmonton's dismantled that big tent city. And uh, well, still, it's just a, a symptom of a bigger problem. All right, let's talk about another problem, housing, homing and housing in general. And uh, that was just an unintentional segue into it because we do have a shortage of housing. The rents are going up. Real estate prices are going up. People are having a hard time getting into a home but at the same time, the people who want to build those homes are having a hard time getting the, the ability to build them fast enough to keep up. So I have Shane Wenzel from Shane Homes on. He's been on before, and uh, we can perhaps uh, find uh, some of the problems and holdups there. So thanks for joining us today, Shane. Thanks for having me, Corey. I, I really appreciate it. I, I can't remember exactly what the tweet was. It was something that got you quite stirred up though a little while back with, with housing because, I mean, they, they, yeah. People are pointing fingers all over the place, but but they won't address the real issues of why we can't get enough housing built to keep up with demand. Can you can you kind of expand Rita, to start this off? Well, yeah, I think what uh, what really ticked me off on the original tweet that I made was uh, just the uh, the housing and affordability task force 
And I guess why it frustrated me, Corey, is that, uh, you know, here we, uh, we had a bunch of city experts and, uh, and other experts get together, but the only expert missing from around the table was, uh, was the housing and development industry and, and what we could do to, uh, to support the, uh, the goal. Yeah, well, and I mean, it just, it just well, again, looking, we're just going to frustrate ourselves when we try to look for common sense in the realm of government and committees and task forces. But all the same, we should still call it out when, boy, you know, if it was a medical thing, they would have doctors involved in it. If it was a, an energy thing, presumably they would have energy producers at least contributing. Uh, if you're looking to build more houses, why don't you have the developers and home builders giving some input on it? Well, it just seemed to be common sense in my mind, and I think in yours as well, and a lot of people's. But, you know, when I look at the task force, I guess where the biggest frustration came in is it, uh, it was really dress, addressing the social issue and, and, and subsidized housing more than it was, you know, affordable market housing and, uh, and trying to get through the boom that we're going through in Alberta right now, being such a popular province to move to. Well, that's it. We've got a great interprovincial and uh, immigration coming into Alberta, I mean, there, there's a great uh, future. It's a great place to move, but we aren't keeping up with that mm -hmm. demand. Uh, and these task forces, as you said, they talk about subsidized housing, things like that, but often they dodge. The reality is we need supply. It doesn't matter how much mm -hmm. you subsidize. If there are not enough houses, you've got a problem. Yes. Well, and that's what we're experiencing right now. I mean, not only do we have, you know, supply chain issues, we're still managing a bit of that. Uh, you know, we're dealing with labor issues as well. Uh, you know, the, uh, the quick estimate off the top of my head would be that in this province, we need about 90 to 100,000 homes built. And we have the capacity for about 36,000 in total. You know, that's, uh, that's a far cry from where we need to be to, uh, to handle the onslaught that we're dealing with. And, you know, we're welcome that, you know, we're obviously happy to have it, I should say. But, you know, not at the, uh, not at the expense of people not being able to take their homes or not being able to afford their homes. And that all comes down to supply. So th th there's two hindrances. We, you know, we've talked about that when you've been on the show before. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll start with the one that was regulatory. Now, I mean, again, when you, you get discussions with people, oh, well, we got to regulate to keep homes safe and have a standard or a certain sure. environmental standard. But sometimes, I mean, th there's just too much. Uh, where could mm -hmm. we reduce some regulations to make it easier for you guys to keep up and, and keep building? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, you know, simple economics, supply and demand. I mean, we're, we're, we're quelling the supply based on an ideology that, uh, that is just kind of foreign to me. And, uh, you know, to, uh, to drop that red tape associated with that ideology would be the first best place to start. You know, we've, uh, we've, we've taken what I like to say is a relatively simple concept of building a house and building an energy efficient home. And we've turned it into something just completely complex to the point where it takes anywhere, you know, depending on the uh, depending on the company. I mean, it could take anywhere from 60 to 150 days longer just to build. I mean, that just seems ridiculous for, uh, you know, when you're trying to supply housing to people and, and in an affordable fashion. Well, yeah, and that, that was something we talked about before. I think it was something along the lines of seven years from concept to construction, assuming every hoop has been jumped through, every license has been uh, found, and every application has been approved. Anywhere along the way, that could get mm -hmm. shut down. I mean, there's millions and millions of dollars spent before you're even seeing a foundation starting to be poured, and, and that all comes down to the cost of the house in the end. Well, sure it does, and, uh, you know, it's the end user that bears the cost, uh, 
you know, there's this, uh, this, this perception that it's the developer or the builder that's absorbing it. Well, you can't absorb it at the end of the day when you're, when you're used to, you know, purchasing land and you're, you're in the ground within a couple of years. Seven years is a tremendously long time, and that just seems to be the norm, and it's getting longer, it seems, every day. Yeah, you know, so everybody's trying their hardest, and, uh, you know, you just kind of long for the days when you had a strong, strong partnership with planning and the city of Calgary, and that just seems to have imploded over the last 12 years. So I, I see one of the commenters saying when we say homes doing apartments or houses or both, I mean, I imagine when I speak, say home, I mean both. I mean, it's, it's all <laughs> somewhere where somebody can be housed, and, and there's demand for each. Are, are condos facing the same sort of hindrances and trying to get zoned and built as, as houses are? Sure they are. You know, and I think that's, uh, you know, it's one of the many challenges because, of course, it takes longer to build, but you can put uh, a tremendous amount of units out there uh, when you look at some of the high rises in downtown Calgary. But even when you look at a lot of the uh, four and five story apartment buildings out in uh, out in new suburbia, you know, it takes uh, at least a couple of years just to get the approvals in place. And by then you may have missed the market. But uh, in this case, you could probably build it now and people will just generally come. But, uh, you know, why such a holdup when, you know, you've, you've taken care of everything that's written in black and white? You know, why are we dealing with, you know, a file manager who wants to put their own personal touch on it? I'm just kind of baffled by all of that. Yeah, well, so that was an interesting comment. And then Don Sharp was a, a commenter as well, saying, you know, what's the best way to streamline some of these issues with the paperwork, inspection, and regulation to, to you know, uh, delays? So you're saying sometimes it is a person just kind of wants to make their own little unique uh, footprint, I guess, on a project. And, you know, in some cases, Corey, that's what's happening. In some cases, you need uh, parks to agree with roads, to agree with the fire department on uh, on certain things. And you can understand that they, you know, they want to dot their, uh, you know, dot their I's and cross their T's rather. But, uh, you know, I mean, ultimately what we're trying to do is we're, we're, we're trying to provide housing and the longer it takes, the, the more expensive it gets because every day costs you more and more and more. That's it. I mean, we could just, you know, flick a switch and, and bring more labor in overnight or, or there's a lot of challenges. We still got to look at a long game, but some of these regulatory things we should be able to, if the will was there, be able to, to mm -hmm. change those pretty quickly. But you, you mentioned ideology as well, and it's not unique to Calgary. That There, there seems to be a lot of municipal governments that have a, a fixation on urban density and, and fighting outward yes. growth of the cities. And uh, that, you know, makes things problematic as well. I mean, inner city infills are beautiful, but they aren't cheap. And uh, we, we need stuff a little faster and a little wider if we're really going to meet that need. Well, and that's really it, Corey. That's the challenge with the ideology is that, you know, it, it, it maybe works in theory, but, uh, you know, this isn't Europe. Uh, you know, we're not, uh, we're not building up as much as we are building out. And when you take a look at a lot of the new suburban subdivisions, quite honestly, uh, they're, they're more dense than even some of the inner city neighborhoods. So, I mean, you've seen a, a tremendous shift over the last short while uh, driven by the consumer. And I mean, really, isn't that what we're doing it for? We're, we're, we're trying to build homes for, for people and we're trying to allow them the choice rather than pigeonholing them inside an ideology. Because if they don't build here in Calgary, if uh, you know, a smaller, uh, smaller center like Airdrie or Okotoks or Chestermere, are prepared to accept that, then they go there. Which actually leads to less density and all of those things that they were ideologically opposed to in the first place. I mean, if they're trying to save mm -hmm. the world and reduce emissions, well, we have people commuting a longer distance to get to work because they've been uh, ironically driven out of the city environment for affordability reasons. 
Sure they do. And that's uh, ultimately what you're going to start to see happen, I think, is, you know, if the, uh, if the city of Calgary is going to be, uh, be more of a challenge, uh, you know, a lot of these smaller centres are prepared to take that tax base and they'll still be working in Calgary and you're not going to see the taxes from them. Well, and we're seeing that in Calgary, for example, with the industrial, for sure. If you, if you go north of the city into the Rocky View, holy cow, are they putting up warehouses yeah. and light manufacturing and all sorts of things? And it's no coincidence that it's just north of the city line. Uh, mm-hmm. The city's not winning when they're trying these battles. No, they're not. And they're losing out on about another thousand acres of that, too. So, I mean, again, it gets, it gets back to the, the solutions. As you said, I mean, we got multiple levels of government. That's part of the problem, too, and they aren't necessarily getting along. I, I think the federal government, I saw some signaling. I mean, they're trying the carrot approach with some of the municipal governments, saying they'd have transfers if, if municipal governments could come up with ways to expand their housing supply. But if you're directing that money directly, it could, of course, just fall into that uh, municipal pot, and they still could hinder uh, outward growth of housing, I guess. Well, that's exactly what's, what you're seeing happening, Corey. And I think that's, again, kind of circling back to the, uh, the Housing Affordability tax, uh, Task Force. Rather. Uh, you know, the focus has been on you know, social, uh, social or subsidized housing because now we've created a problem. We've created you know, a, a pricing problem and an affordability problem. You know, and that, uh, that seems to be where a lot of that's getting directed. And I'm you know, good on them for, uh, for taking on that issue. But, you know, the biggest challenge past that is, you know, we're already constrained with labor. So how are you going to build it? You've come up with this great plan, but how are you going to build it, more importantly? Yeah, I mean, you subsidize, socialized housing. And then when you, you pour money into that, when you have the labor crunch, well, then you're actually just going to put the prices of things up even higher because you're pulling mm-hmm. the, the labor and supplies into another area. It turns into a self-feeding monster. A- another issue we've got, and it's not just the, the people at the level of needing subsidized or socialized housing, but people are in, if they've recently bought into an existing home uh, and they came in tightly, on the financing, uh, the interest rates have been going up and, and suddenly they're finding themselves very, very crunched right now and making that mortgage payment. And that's the, uh, the, new, the new challenge that we have. And we faced that last month where we had 10 homeowners who couldn't take their homes because they no longer qualified with the, uh, with the increase in the rates. And, uh, and of course, now they're requalifying under the, uh, uh, the uh, CMHC stress test rather. And that, uh, that just adds another two and a half, two and uh, three quarter points onto what they have to qualify for. So they no longer qualify for a home. So they were that close to achieving their dream. And now that's gone for now. And it's got to be heartbreaking. I mean, we, we know now it is so hard to get into the housing market and getting going, saving that money, getting the good credit, tightening the belts. And then, as you said, getting that close and suddenly, and I'm sorry, uh, it might take you a couple more years, if ever, because the, the cost has just shot up yet again. Yes, yes. So, I mean, you know, eliminating that stress test would be the first best thing. And I know that I have a number of people who would argue with me on that, but uh, I just don't think that's a qualification that really needs to be in place anymore. I think, uh, you know, if the federal government follows through on their promise that they're, they're not going to continually jack up rates, which they seem to have failed at to this point, uh, you know, then we wouldn't have these same issues. You know, it, uh, it also works both ways when you continually increase rates. I mean, that just puts fear in people, fear that they're never going to be able to get in. They're never going to be able to achieve that dream. And that's creating, you know, that mass rush as well. Well, yeah, you might reevaluate your decision as well. I mean, oh, wow, I'm qualified now, but we're here. We're one paycheck away from bankruptcy. If we go, if we dive in right now, maybe we'll wait and, and they'll hold back. But I mean, it doesn't get easier for waiting, unfortunately. Uh, no. So, 
Have you, has your industry or India's industry associations at least been reaching out to the government saying, Hey, Hey, you know, talk to us. We can work on this. Like, has there been an effort to try and at least get them to realize that they're, they're missing out on an important perspective? There are literally daily and weekly conversations with every level of government possible. Uh, you know, the, uh, the HBAs, the home building associations rather across the entire country, even at the federal level have spent a lot of time with their counterparts in government having these discussions on how to make things more affordable now, whether or not they take the recommendations. I mean, that's, that's totally up to the, uh, the minister and their departments. Well, if they didn't invite your, your input in the first place, it, it doesn't sound like they're, they're eager to hear it, unfortunately. But I think they're eager to hear it, uh, but I guess where the challenge comes in, Corey, is that it should have been right up front with the strategy. It shouldn't be, you know, here, we've come with a strategy. Now you guys figure out how to make it work. Yeah, and that's where I really get frustrated is we should have been involved right up front and it's disappointing that we weren't. So just to kind of finish up, I mean, one of the big hindrances, and I, I don't know if you have an answer for it, is, is our labor shortage, though. I mean, if we streamline things, we get them faster, we got some new areas zoned for it, fantastic, ready to go. What can we do, though, to get more boots on the ground to, to help build these? I mean, that's a real bottleneck, no matter what the regulations are. Well, that's really going to come down to your immigration policies and, uh, and, and the kind of people that you're bringing in and the skill set that they have. I mean, we know where we have the gaps, uh, you know, when our industry is prepared to share that information and they have with their provincial and federal counterparts. But, uh, you know, it's it, it's getting the attention of the uh, the immigration ministers and and uh, and ensuring that, you know, we are working towards bringing this skill set into Canada and, and across the country. Yeah, which is a much bigger and complicated, uh, you know, discussion. But I mean, uh, targeting skilled uh, uh, immigrants, whether from carpenters to even just just labor. But I mean, it, it's important. I mean, that's one of the things where we can fulfill one of the things we're bringing the immigrants in and they're helping build the homes that they're going to need when they get here. Exactly. And I mean, that's that's an immediate solution and a long term solution is you do have to get young kids uh, and uh, and what have you in the trades. Uh, you, you, what you're seeing or what you're experiencing now is you are experiencing retirements. You know, you've got trades that are, are uh, longer in the tooth and they're uh, 65, 70 years old. And they're saying, that's enough. I'm calling it a day. It's time to enjoy my, uh, my golden years. So you do need uh, kids in the trades. And to be honest, I couldn't think of any generation that has a greater opportunity for a career than they do now in the trades. Oh, very good point. I mean, it would take a, a couple to a few years to get those kids through those programs, but boy, it would pay mm -hmm. off for them and, and us uh, when we get that big influx of, of trained people in the market. You bet. Well, <laughs> we'll uh, just have to keep reaching out, keep pressuring government. I mean, there's been a recent cabinet shuffle. Maybe uh, they're receptive to some new ideas in there and, and, uh, and listening, because I mean, it's as frustrated as we get with the the Liberal government, I, I'm sure they would love, though, to have this housing problem off their back. So, I mean, they've they got to be somewhat receptive to some good thoughts now and then. With any luck, a hope and a prayer. Hope well, and a prayer. we'll keep the discussions going. Thanks for calling them out online and, and coming on the show to discuss that with us, though, because, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of scratch their heads. Well, we need them. Why aren't we getting the houses? Well, you know, there's a lot of reasons and uh, some solutions if the government would uh, start considering them. So uh, I appreciate that. Where, where can people see you uh, online and, and uh, where you're speaking and such, Shane? Oh, pretty simple. Just at Shane Wenzel. Just go on any platform. You're going to find me there. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on, Shane. Uh, it's always a good conversation when you, when you come on. And uh, one of these days we'll get it all solved. 
I can only hope, Corey. <laughs> Thanks right. again and take hey, care. You bet. So that was Shane Wenzel of Shane Holmes. And yeah, it's a great Twitter account to follow. Some good common sense stuff. He's not as uh, belligerent as I am on Twitter. He uh, likes to stick to the points a little more. But, you know, you can follow both, right? You can get me cursing people out and you can get Shane making some good points. And, and one of those points, see, that's one I hadn't even thought of. That's why I like having these guests on here. I can't think of everything. But the trades, that's something that drove me mad. I, I finished high school in 88 in Banff. And, yeah, I, I spent some time in a private school prior to that. It's understandable from the private school. Public school still. I went through school, came out. I didn't know what a trade was. I really didn't. I didn't know what a journeyman was. I didn't know the, the, what any of these things were. An apprenticeship? I think in some uh, fantasy novels I'd read, uh, you know, magician's apprentices and things like that. Like, we were not taught that. Why? Why are we not taught that in school? Why are we not taught that that path is there? I mean, that's been a long time. I don't know. Maybe some commenters can uh, speak up and let me know. Are the schools allowing a little more of that discussion because i mean some of the discussion when i came out of school was along the lines of you're either going to get a university degree or you're going to be a janitor and there's nothing in the middle like, that was a lot of what the attitude was and uh, not everybody is geared to the academic path and there is absolutely nothing wrong at all with these trades and as i said we're all paying the price now as shane pointed out for the lack of the trades i mean do you see any starving electricians or plumbers or carpenters right now millwrights no, they're busy. They're making good money. They got solid, secure work, and they're providing products for us. We don't need more women's studies graduates, guys. We've got enough gender ideology study graduates out there. I promise you, we don't need more philosophers, but we could sure use a heck of a lot more plumbers. So yeah, maybe it's time to readjust. And there's no shame whatsoever in going into a trade. That's what it felt like when I graduated. Like it was shameful to go into a trade. That's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And uh, what's this uh, commenter? See, my daughter just graduated as a journeyman welder out of Fairview after attending public school. There we go. Uh, the comp in Grand Prairie. Good. Yeah, welders. Hey, that's good coin. And there's a, you know, again, there's always demand for those things. We got to reevaluate some of our thinking. And, we're, and a lot of uh, speaking of kids who fall through the cracks on graduation, if they don't know that path is there, they aren't going to pursue it. I, I ended up in the survey industry as a helper for a surveyor and, and climbed the, you know, the, the, the pole uh, that way. But I, I didn't have any, I guess, aspirations to be uh, an electrician or any of those trades. But even if I did, I wouldn't have known where to begin. I really wouldn't have. And our schools should be teaching us that. That's some of the basics. That's some of the things. So nobody should get out of school and not know what the potential career paths are. So we're really failing ourselves. We're failing our students. And uh, it, it's not good for any of us. Uh, uh, yeah, the paradox is saying they stopped vocational schools at some point. And I, I think some of that was, again, they, they made a stigma about it, right? Like they, they made it sound as if, you know, if you go to a vo vocational school, it's a lesser thing. Uh, yeah, well, look, uh, the kind of home your average mechanic is dry uh, living in these days, you know, they're, again, they're making really good money. Uh, those vocational schools weren't where you put the loser kids. There were places to put kids who were looking at a different educational path. It doesn't mean they were, and that's what I mean. We got to change that mindset. It's because they're not into reading philosophy or doing high math. It doesn't mean they're stupid. It just means they might be hands-on workers who are important and they should be embraced. You know, they should be trained with what they're showing the aptitude towards and everybody gets into the things they need to. Uh, this is the third we're saying heavy duty automotive and agricultural technicians. Uh, yeah. They, all these, these positions are out there right now. And uh, what do you know? How many more people do we need graduating with uh, degrees in interpretive dance, right? 
speaking of schools and how absurd and ridiculous and, and uh, bad they're getting, I'm, I'm sure a lot of us, uh, you know, have seen that story. And I'm probably uh, pronouncing his name wrong. Is uh, Richard uh, uh, Bilkzo, and he was a, a principal over in Ontario, uh, and he was with the the Toronto uh, Regional School Board with them. And uh, he'd taught. He, he's 60 years old. He's been a career teacher. Um, taught on on both sides of the border. He'd, he'd worked in upstate New York in in inner city schools. He'd uh, taught up in Canada. He'd spent time. He went to a diversity course, a trainer, one of those things, a a person whose specialty is basically trying to train us all somehow in diversity. And I guess at this this seminar, uh, it was uh, taught by a a woman named, uh, uh, I guess I could be mispronouncing as well, Kiki Ojo Thompson at the Kojo Institute. And that's her thing. She charges like $6,000 for a four-hour Zoom seminar on diversity. I mean, there's quite a racket on this stuff, guys. But she went on the tirade, and we've seen videos of those sorts of things, and she was going on about how awful and racist Canada is, and then she said that Canada was more racist than the United States. I I mean, it's a fool's game to talk about who's more or less anyways. I mean, and again, the discussion comes to, so you're denying there's racism. Nobody's denying there's racism. Nobody's saying we shouldn't be calling out racism and stopping racism. But when we go to these extremes of everybody should hang their head in shame because we're all somehow inherently racist, it gets tiresome. This man spoke up and said, well, wait a, wait a second. And he said along the lines of, look, I, I have worked both sides. We're not more racist here in Canada than in the States. Well, she was furious. She was furious. And she called him out and she berated him. She called him a white supremacist. She called him the works. And again, as a progressive, he was a progressive man. There's nothing worse you could be called than that. And I guess at a future uh, uh, seminar she gave, she, she basically brought him up in another lecture uh, saying, is it exemplified the forces of white supremacist resistance? Using him as a white supremacist example is what she was doing. She wouldn't lay off this man. And he was bullied. The Toronto District School Board wouldn't stand up for him. It stressed him out. He went on leave. And then he actually sued the, the Toronto District School Board because of that. And they turned around, sued her, the the diversity uh, person. And this went on for a couple of years. But then they started calling him up. They started character assassination on this man and and trying to claim that he's, you know, again, some sort of white nationalist. It got to him. And he committed suicide a a few weeks ago. What a waste. What a waste. The, 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 The stress of this. This brought down his career for just daring to question some of the rhetoric at one of these seminars. And this is what teachers are expected to embrace with some of this, this self-loathing. And, and they get bullied. They get bullied, they get swarmed. Some of the online discussion I've seen, and again, you know, I, I play on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter's a nasty place. But my, the vulgarity of one, and I can't remember her name, it doesn't matter. If you wanna look up my Twitter scroll, you'll see it from the other day. She was, had a whole thread about this guy on basically calling him a white nationalist. And she called it, he unlived himself. Yeah, she wouldn't even say suicide. He unlived himself. They're making up words to try and sugarcoat this man who was bullied to death. Literally, bullied to death by this swarm of these woke diversity people. Yeah, I, I, I don't doubt. Uh, and that's some of the things people call it. Well, he obviously had existing mental health problems. Well, probably. Uh, a lot of people can take a lot of stress without reaching the point of suicide. But it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, Amanda Todd was a young girl who was bullied online and shamed, and she committed suicide too. And 
are you going to shame her saying she was weak of mind? Because that's kind of what they're saying about this man, you know, because she couldn't take it without leading to that outcome. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And these are the people who call themselves woke. These are the people who call themselves the sensitive ones, the ones that are trying to make us all love each other. What a load of crap. It's gone too far to the extreme. And it's so wrong. These are the kind of folks who say things like Jason Aldean's song was about racism when it's not there. And, you know, let's go back to some old, old words of wisdom, okay? And uh, that would be with uh, uh, you know, old uh, fairy tales, myths, things such as that. But the boy who cried wolf, you know, you keep calling something out, calling something out, calling something out. Eventually, people stop believing you when the real issue happens. Because, again, there is real racism out there. There really are some white nationalists out there. I tell you, they're a minority of a minority, those losers. It's not even like the days I remember being young in Calgary in the, the late 80s, early 90s when I moved here. And uh, there were literal skinheads who would show their faces on the street. They'd walk around. These guys embraced their gross white nationalist ideology. Times have changed. You don't see guys walking around with swastikas tattooed on their foreheads and uh, shaven heads and their, and their boots on like that anymore because the public won't put up with these idiots. And they still exist. They're just, again, a small, small amount of clowns and they should be taken seriously. Some of these nutcases actually hurt people sometimes. But when you're busy going after progressive high school principals for fake cases of white nationalism, or if you're going after country songs for where apparently the root of racism is, you're going to overlook the real racists who are out there who are wandering around who perhaps really do want to cause problems, who really do want to victimize people, who really do want to divide people more based on their religion or their race or other such things. We've overshot the target, guys, badly, badly. And it's got it's to come back. Either way, this man's life was lost. And to see these, these, these guys ripping into the, 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 this man, his body's barely cooled, and trying to rip his character down to protect basically what they think is a good idea with these diversity seminars where you call people out and rip them apart like that. It's, it's repugnant to behold. And uh, call them out back, guys. That's what's got to happen. You got to stand up like this man did. Unfortunately, it led to his death. But at least he stood up in that room and said, hey, you're spreading BS. And let's talk about it. And, and, you know, and, and again, he wasn't belligerent about it. He was just saying, no, I don't agree with you. You're not allowed to disagree. You're not allowed to disagree. You disagree, we will swarm you. We will shatter your character. We will cancel you. We will take away your career. And in the end, it took away this man's life. These extremists that manage some of this diversity have to be put off to the side. They, they, they're, they're beyond the pale. They've gone too far. Um, let's see. We'll get into the uh, check into the agricultural world pretty quickly here. But first, uh, I, I'll hit quickly on, as we mentioned earlier, there's been a cabinet shuffle. This is what I see as Justin Trudeau desperate. Desperate. I mean, he's been over and over. The polls are showing they're slowly but surely declining. I mean, at best right now, if an election was held tomorrow, you'd have a conservative minority government. And I don't see who they could form an agreement with to last a long time. Uh, the NDP certainly wouldn't partner with them, but the Liberals would not get the most seats in the House if another election was held. And that trend keeps going down and down and down. There's only two things a, a government can do in that case, is change leaders or really shuffle the cabinet and hope that you've refreshed things enough 
that people will uh, look at you with a, a new eye and, uh, and, and, and change things. I think it's too little, too late. We'll see. But yeah, Mandicino's out, the Minister of Lies. I mean, I, you know, that was a given. That, that guy's a clown. Uh, he probably, even Trudeau realized he'd had to get rid of that guy months and months ago, but he had to wait for the opportunity of the next shuffle. So he's finished. Uh, Al Omar Al Hebra, I'm so terrible with names, but he's out. He was in transportation, of course, the mess with the airlines, uh, the, the strike on the dock. Carolyn Bennett. She's been there for over 25 years. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she's out. Like We're not talking about you know moving from spot to spot. They're out of cabinet altogether. So uh, yeah, she's not going to run again. Uh, she was behind, you know, she was the health uh, or, or addictions and mental health minister. So she was behind the big safe supply disaster that's unfolding in Vancouver right now as uh, overdoses, you know, hit record numbers. Uh, and uh, addicts just buy the, the safer supply pills and, and sell them to other addicts. It's a failed policy. So Trudeau threw her out of cabinet. A few other lateral things and seven rookie cabinet ministers. We'll see. But what I see when I think of the, the method and way that uh, Pierre Polyev works is he's rubbing his hands together because he's going to have a cabinet full of rough rookies hitting. And part of the reason is because Justin wants to keep his balance of women in there. So he really has narrowed his pool on who he can pick for cabinet or not. Not to say there are no qualified women, but maybe not enough to make that 50-50 he wanted and so on. And uh, Polyev is going to rip into those rookie cabinet ministers like they've never felt before when that next session hits. And they better be well established because uh, if, if that new cabinet can't fix things up, the liberals are going to continue to decline. All right. Well, let's check in quickly with Jim Buzicum of uh, Marketplace Commodities and see what's happening out there in the agricultural commodity world. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Great, Corey. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks. So what, what's making headlines for the, the ag people these days? Okay, so on the ag side, um, it's, it's probably somewhat, obviously, much less serious issues than what you're talking about today. So Harvest is starting in Western Canada. We're looking at um, some of the first yields coming off, uh, showing the effects of the drought. Southern Alberta, they're starting to harvest some peas, 25 to 35 bushels per acre. Some of the barley harvest, it's uh, very, very poor. We don't expect much different than that to start. The first harvest would be the worst. Um, but as they get into it further, we'll start getting some better, um, you know, some more results uh, that we can share, you know, potentially next week. Um, as far as markets go, um, it's a pretty unique situation. Like Canadian prices are extremely high. We are, to just give you some comparisons, um, here in Canada, like we're trading a lot of feed commodities, even export commodities, somewhere around $400 Canadian per metric ton. If you compare that to what some of the other competing countries, some of the export prices from elsewhere, I'd say we're 100 bucks a ton too high in Western Canada on much of our commodities. So um, we're competing with Russian wheat, Russian peas, going into China, going into Southeast Asia. Everyone talks about the issues that are on the go out there. Those are serious issues. We get that. But you know what? They're shipping. Ukraine is shipping. Those commodities, they get to the end user. They really don't care who the origin is. They just want the best price, best quality, just like we all do. Uh, so it's an interesting situation coming back here because, you know, we, we hear quite often that, well, shipping's slowing down or it's going to be hard to move from those areas. Well, you know what? They're actually offering lower week over week 
and we're having a harder time exporting into similar markets that they are. So the markets are uh, are showing that product is still moving. Well, and then getting the, the yeah, getting the product grown and harvested is one thing, and getting it to market is another. So with, with the strike looking like it's going to come to an end in the docks, do you think that, that they'll have a limited impact then on exports at this point then? So on, on ag commodities, it, it has affected some people significantly, probably for sure, like some of the hay exporters that I know have been significantly affected by it. A lot of the grain and oilseed commodities, it's a slow time of the year to be exporting. It's the end of a crop year. Crop year is August through July. So um, if things open up, things will probably return to some level of normal. Um, of course, a huge negative because it's not just that they open up. It's the fact that they can shut down exports from a country like Canada for such a significant period of time. That keeps buyers wary about buying too much, too far out from even a first world country like Canada. Can you believe it? Yeah, well, it's similar to the issues we have with our, our, our energy market as well. I mean, when we can't seem to get a, a multiple pipelines to get to Tidewater to export our products, it uh, reduces capital investment in, in the energy market. I, I don't see why it wouldn't be the same with agriculture then. If, if you can't get it out, uh, there's no, not much point in growing it. It's absolutely that. It's all of that right back to here, just uh, investment back into this industry when it's hard to to move it out. And it seems like you're always fighting another red tape battle to make it happen. Well, let's uh, hope that the, the ports remain open and maybe that, that shakeup and the reality of how vulnerable we are might uh, uh, inspire some of our regulators to, to try and secure our export ability a little more in the future. You bet. Thanks, Corey. All right. Thanks, Jim. I'll talk to you down the road. All right. See ya. So that was Jim Buzicum of Marketplace Commodities. And yeah, it's just a, an ever-floating, like what well, commodities in general, oil, gas. I mean, if you're trying to invest in a long game, but you get so many variables that get in the, the way, whether it's port strikes or, uh, as you say, things happening in, in the Ukraine and uh, Ukraine. I'm still of the old school where you call it the Ukraine. And, uh, you know, weather patterns around the world. But it's, it's an area of specialty. Uh, I can't imagine the, the amount of uh, reading uh, that Jim and his co-workers over there have to do to keep up with uh, uh, the, the commodities in general. So check them out, guys, if you're an ag producer or looking into those ag markets, marketplace commodities, and uh, you can get a picture of what's happening out there in those markets. All right. Uh, you know, speaking, I'm going to close out with, I, I kind of touched on that, uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. You know, there's, there's some news came out that uh, we're supposed to basically uh, don't worry about this extra 31 million that was spent on it. And the, the records again, government ineptness, the government screwing up kinder Morgan. And I loathe that whenever some clown says to you, Oh, but the government built you a pipeline, bought you a pipeline. Guess my butt. Nobody wanted you to buy the trans mountain pipeline. You guys drove kinder Morgan away from it. They were going to build it for private dollars, not a penny out of a taxpayer's dollar pocket. And it would lead to the employment of thousands of people downstream. And the government screwed with them so badly with the regulation and messing around. They said, you know what? We're out. We're out. We're done. And it was a disaster for the government. So they panicked and they went in and they bought the pipeline. But if you want to know the height of stupidity, it's a government-run project. So here we are years and years later, still nothing going through that pipe. They've been working on it and puttering around with it and pissing around with it and shutting it down and opening it up. The costs now, the current estimate is $30.9 billion. 
from seven and some billion dollars only a few years ago when the private market was going to build it. 30.9, and you know it's going to keep going up under these idiots and their management of it, if it ever bloody well gets to the coast. I, I'm sure they're doing it on purpose. It helps to the case of the people saying, see, energy's not viable. It's not worth it. It's too expensive. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, I'm saying energy, I mean, oil and gas. No, only because of the bloody government. Well, because the government makes it so inefficient to get it to the coast. They're dragging their feet on purpose, which is almost criminal. And uh, let's just hope that darn thing gets finished at one point or another. But $30.9 billion. And they said we're not going to use any more public money in the thing. They have to. They have to get the bloody thing done, so they're pouring it in. So now they're trying to hide it. You know, $10 million here, $31 million there. It's terrible. All right. Well, that's the show this week, guys. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, we covered a lot of ground, talked about a lot of stuff. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, westernstandard.news slash membership. That's how we can stay independent. That's how we keep things rolling, guys. And thank you to you who have subscribed already. Share our stuff out there. Subscribe to the newsletter because you never know when we might not be able to get found on Google and Facebook and all those things. Again, thanks to our rather inept federal government. And uh, yeah, I will see you all here again at this time next week. So thanks again. The current Lethbridge feed grain prices are as follows. Cash barley is down $9 at $4.26. Feed wheat is down $14 at $4.22. And corn is down $10 at $406 per ton. In the milling wheat markets, September Minneapolis futures lost 34.5 cents at $8.97, with local hardware spring bid for August movement at $10.40 per bushel. In the oil seeds, nearby canola futures are up $8.30 at $832.30 per ton, with delivered values for August movement at $19 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are trading at $0.34 cents per pound, and yellow peas remain at $11.50 per bushel. In the cattle markets, August live cattle added $0.60 cents at $178.90 per hundredweight. I'm David Lee at Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada. And more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.